0: Gold price as a, as a good long-term proxy for the value of, of currencies. And one way to think about it is gold fundamentals can't really change, the world changes around it. So gold's like a mirror that reflects the world. I like that. And so when the, when the gold price doubles, gold didn't do anything, it's just the value of currencies fell in half. Yeah. I mean, that that's what <laughs> happened.
1: You're listening to Trader's Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at TradersInsight.News. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is
2: Steve Sosnick. Welcome to Interactive Brokers, Traders Insight Radio. We are taping this podcast today on February 23rd. My guest today is Lewis Johnson. And I will let Lewis introduce himself um, and his firm uh, for all of you.
0: Oh, hi, Steve. So, uh, so thanks again for um, you know for having us on. It's it's really an honor. We appreciate it. Um, so, again, my name is Lewis Johnson. I'm the uh, Chief Investment Officer and a partner here at uh, Capital Wealth Advisors, and it's a kind of a full service in, uh, investment advisory business headquartered in Naples, Florida. Have about 50 team members, and we built that business organically over the last uh, nine or 10 years uh, on the investment side.
2: You know, one of the things I'd really like you to inform the the, the listeners about is um, when you and I talked. I, I was amazed at how you've grown this firm organically. You know, from relatively, I'm going to say relatively from the ground up here. Um, and and I think that um, a lot of the listeners would enjoy hearing the path that you took and and, and where you made. The right choices, and and if there are any choices
0: you regret, <laughs> well, well, uh, when we when we talk as a group of partners, we can always uh, list very quickly, you know, the painful mistakes we made along the way. What I've tried to do is just bring my kind of investment perspective, you know, being in the markets for more than twenty years. So I've made my share of mistakes, and that that has tried to, um, I think, kind of inform the way we try to talk to clients. I, I can share with you just a quick. You know, personal personal story. Basically, my father was killed actually in a car accident, uh, which could have devastated uh, you know my family financially. But we had a financial advisor who was a family friend. You know, he cared about us. He made good decisions on behalf of my my mother. And so the the small amount of money that we had for insurance paid my way to college my mother got to keep our, our family home. And, you know, it made a difference that we had competent people that cared, that were that were working uh, to help our personal financials. And so, you know, that was an experience that's never been far from, from my heart. And I don't think it's far from the hearts of, of all of our team members when we think about t- trying to work on behalf of our clients. Well,
2: I'm, I'm certainly sorry to hear about your family's personal tragedy. Uh, you know, I think we're all informed in our investment uh, philosophies or our investment styles about uh, the path we've taken up to this point. And and, your firm's been in business for 18 years, you've been in the business for over 20. Um, Tell tell us a little bit more about how you arrived where you are today, uh, the path that you took, and how that informs um, your style and your choices that you make uh, on behalf of your clients.
0: Well well sure. Well, I got out of Wharton my first uh, full-time job in the investment business was with T Rowe Price uh down in Baltimore. And so I guess um I thought it was a lot of money that they're imagining at the time it was 300 billion and now it's something like 1.6 trillion. <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah, I know that those <laughs> numbers are so crazy. But uh but it was just a wonderful place to learn, Steve, because you know, you um you know, I came out and I had a lot of drive. I really wanted to to kind of perfect my craft on the investment side, and just in terms of um of a place really to learn, you you really couldn't uh, really couldn't beat it. I had the chance to work with, you know, some wonderful people, and 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 because you you're working with thoughtful professionals who all had decades in the business themselves, you know, who had their own framework. It was a wonderful way, you know, could to kind of organically find. Um, what kind of investor you were, what your thinking points were, and so forth. Um, and so, um, so one of the things that that I think I, I took from that formative experience, and took um, in as my kind of analytical career was just the, um, the, you know, the need to really think about, I guess, trade trade structure. And so we think a lot about investing in solutions. We take a look and we say, well what are the problems society needs to solve to, to progress as a group? And and then we like to focus our kind of investment and research efforts within within that because I think society proceeds by the profitable solving of important problems. And so that's how we want to participate on behalf of our investors.
2: Yeah, you raise a very important point, and I think that's lost on a lot of investors. And one of the things that you said was one of your bigger takeaways was trade structure. And I think that gets lost on a lot of investors, smaller investors don't necessarily need to sweat it as much. But I think people um, fail to appreciate liquidity risk as being out there, and, and this is not a matter of being gloomy or downbeat. But but it, it is a risk, and it has a way of sneaking up on you at absolutely the worst time. Um, and is, it's interesting to hear that that was something you you and the team at T Rowe actively considered when you were structuring your portfolios or your positions.
0: Well, definitely. I, I think that's where, you know, I kind of got my my spurs in the investing business. And then I had the good fortune to work with a lot of other very talented professionals uh, in time, a couple of different kind of New York based, uh, you know, hedge funds. And one of the things that became very clear to me, Steve, at least in my career, was that um, in an ideal world, you'd have, you know, perfect timing. You'd sell at the top, you'd buy at the bottom. Nobody does that. And so only liars. <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, uh Uh, We kind of joke around the office that um, even though we're not clairvoyant, there is always room on our analytical team for people that can see the future. (laughs) And so if anybody out in the listening audience is in fact clairvoyant, please send me your your email because I'm always looking for people that can see the future. But failing that, you really have to think about... um, like I said, this idea of trade structure because trade structure is the one thing that you really can control. You know, because basically the only thing you really can can control is is your kind of entry price, and then everything else is something that that happens to you. And so either you can have perfect timing, or you can think about trade structure, and and um, and and that really goes into the position thinking as well as the portfolio construction. I mean, it's a it's a frequent conversation I've had with clients that you know if everything in your portfolio is going up and down. It's at it, the same time that's not diversified.
2: Yeah, I've been I've been having this discussion sort of with our readership and uh, on Traders Insight and 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 in the media and, and you know because I get the question a lot you know about you know what makes a hedge you know as someone who was an option trader um, for most of his career um, you know hedging hedging is not necessarily just done with with derivatives it's it's done by structure it's done by um, you know, finding assets that that are, you know, decorrelated or poorly correlated mm. or, or less volatile with with more volatile. Um, you know, the question I get a lot is, um, you know, is crypto a hedge? Um, which I won't take you down the rabbit hole. But my my <laughs> short answer is no, uh, because it, it's you know increasingly correlated with other risk yeah. assets. Um, but it does bring us back to you know the commodity sector because I will say that that, you know, particularly in the current. Environment uh, commodities are a hedge. Um, Gold actually has been an an outperformer, and you've got some extensive experience investing in both commodities and you know trading commodities and commodity Mm -hmm. stocks. Um, You know, tell me how that's informing your work in in this current environment.
0: No, well, that, well, that's a great question, Steve. Because I can I can tell you that really that is how kind of we begin, kind of every day, or the the kind of long-term investment journey the clients are on when, when you're you know risking your hard-earned money in the market, which is um, you know how to how to navigate, how to get from where we are to you know a better future, and. Um, and so uh, you're correct. I mean, I've uh, kind of began my analytical career in the kind of cyclical commodity related uh, commodity equity uh, related businesses. That was really kind of the, the first emerging markets boom that kind of began in 02. Uh, and I kind of continued that, as I said, in the uh, working for a very well-known commodity trading company, and that's uh, where I kind of began my formal collaboration with our director of research Zev uh, Abraham. And so we've really devoted quite a bit of time in our career to that. And and I think it's um it's a wonderful it's a wonderful place for people to invest. It was a wonderful place to kind of learn the business because what you what you see quite quickly what people are willing to pay for a business or the environment in which that business operates change much more quickly than the actual business itself. And so it really um, makes it inescapable for you to understand that everything is cyclical and you need to kind of know where you are in that cycle, what are driving those things. So if you if you take a step back, you look big picture at commodities, I mean we have a, a very bullish multi-year outlook on commodities. If you th- For instance, you were just talking about gold. I mean, gold is the same price it was 10 years ago. Yes. So, um, you know, and and it has a long correlation of having a very, excuse me, a long period of time of having very little correlation with the equity market. And frankly, um, not to kind of go too deep down the rabbit hole, but but, uh, but gold and a lot of gold related assets has a very useful um, function in times when valuations are high. And right now they're very historically high in in equities. And that is a gold tends to do um, kind of uh, exceptionally well when um, equity valuations are high and kind of normalizing. Uh, And so um, that really has been like a long area of focus and it's definitely represented in our our client's portfolio now. That's kind of one thing to start the commodity um, argument about the other side as well. It's been my experience that all of the, the real secular bull markets and commodities begin and end with gold for one reason and one reason only. And that's that if you think back to your microeconomics class, micro 101, um, the long-term price of a commodity is equal to, if you remember, it's marginal cost of production. Uh, and so basically, you cannot have a secular bull market in the price of a commodity unless you have a bull market in the marginal cost to make that <laughs> commodity, and that's gold, right? Because um, because gold does a very good job over time of reflecting changing currency values within it. So um, at this point, when you take a look at how we are trying to take advantage of that market opportunity in commodities, very meaningful kind of gold-related positions, also in um, the agricultural sector where I spent quite a bit of time, let's say the um, publicly traded fertilizer companies where they're selling valuable inputs into to farmers who were trying to increase their yields. Um, you know, and for instance, uh, of course, LNG uh, liquefied natural gas, you know, frankly, uh, is exceptionally well positioned if you, with now that with the geopolitical issues in terms of um, the Russians rolling tanks into, into the Ukraine. Well, that's 40% of German natural gas supplies That probably need to come from somewhere else, and that's you know I don't even that's a big shift.
2: Oh yeah, I don't even know how many
0: trillions of dollars that's going to take. I'm going to guess it's a lot, and it's probably going to take eight or ten years to fix, if even if it's a Marshall Plan type uh, scale rollout. So, so you know that kind of gets back to again profitably Mm -hmm. investing in solutions. You know, I I, and actually go kind of one further in terms of 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 why we do have this positive multi-year outlook on on commodities is that it's an area that's been starved of of investments and and frankly there's um i was just reading this morning frankly from McKinsey global institute was talking about the zero carbon goal um that so much the world is focused on at this point and it put a price tag of 275 trillion dollars to meet zero emissions by 2050 that's just so much money that money has not been has not been spent yet it's not there (laughs) no you know but um but but it it shows the the scope of of money that's going to need to be deployed if that goal is going to be met and and the second thing of course where i think this is going to create an opportunity is i think was yesterday uh, i think it was blackstone came out if if i recall it correctly and said that on their private equity side they're not going to be investing in fossil fuels anymore well I don't think we have the green energy transition down yet in terms of new supply. So to cut off supply before you have your alternative supply is kind of a recipe for markedly higher prices and a lot of instability. And so I think, um, I think we're entering a period like that and that should be higher prices. And, and that of course is the, the means of, of, you know, what's the saying today is high prices are the cure for, you know, high prices are the
2: cure for high prices. exactly. Now we're, we're, we're taping this on a day where um, I believe wheat and soybeans both hit multi-year highs
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: in Chicago. Um, and going back to your point about which I agree with about you know the the marginal you know the the, the long-term price mm-hmm. is, is around the price of marginal cost of production. Um, it doesn't strike me that the marginal cost of production of of, of those commodities have gone has gone up markedly. Um, in the past couple of, you know, in the past couple of weeks, and, and they're responding to, you know, short term supply and demand concerns. How much of it do you feel is is a monetary phenomenon going back to uh, uh, macro 101, <laughs> um, you know, where, where it's exactly. too much money chasing, um, a, you know, too few goods? Um, and how much of that do you feel is, um, is something that is within the Fed's purview versus mm. we're, we're just going to have
0: to roll with this? Well, no, that that's a great question. Let's try to kind of unpack that on kind of two levels. Yeah. I mean, the first, in terms of macro, um, I think you're definitely correct. I mean, we use the um, the gold price as a as a good long term proxy for the value of of currencies. And one way to think about it is, gold fundamentals can't really change; the world changes around it. So, gold's like a mirror that reflects the world. I like that. Uh, and so, when the when the gold price doubles gold didn't do anything. It's just the value of currencies fell in half. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that, that's what happened. <laughs> Anti, so, it's
2: the so I look at it as the anti-dollar, but that's a more nuanced way of, of viewing it. I appreciate that.
0: One. No, no, no. Well, yeah. Well, one of the things that in a conversation I've had with clients very frequently is, you know, the gold's been around before there was a dollar, gold will be around after there's a dollar. So so the, the big gold bull markets are when it's outperforming Kind of everything, stock markets, different currencies. So I try not to get too fixated on the the dollar it, itself. That tends to be a kind of a global phenomenon, at least in the yeah. in the big gold bull markets. So so, but that kind of gets back to Steve to what we said earlier. We definitely have a very constructive multi-year outlook, and we're expressing that right now in a concentrated way in the, in precious mm-hmm. metals, because we really in gold because we really we, that's where this is going to start, for reasons we outline. Now, one other comment I would make. This is on a micro level. In terms of these higher crop prices that you're that you're seeing right now remember that um another way to think about it too but there could be a very rational uh, reason but let's say for those higher crop prices if if the world let's say x ukraine now or x russia needs to bring on more wheat supply because russia and ukraine are very meaningful wheat exporters then um, we're going to have to expand capacity in the western world to meet for that, and so that means you're going to have to use more marginal lands, and you're going to have to bid that land away from other higher-priced crops. And so, um, so a big part of what happens in that shift in the supply and demand cycle is, is, is the aggregate level of demand rising, and so you're having to bring in higher-cost, you know, acres, for instance. And so, I think it's probably a combination of both of those. But I think you have your finger on a very important phenomenon, which is that these cycles tend to be. Um, you know ubiquitous in in nature they tend to the you know, rising tide uh, tends to lift yeah. a lot of boats although although i will tell you that right now we we do have a pretty meaningful concern that the chinese property market which we've been talking about for a good six or nine months is impaired we think on a multi-year basis due to the draconian uh, credit controls that are there now which are now leading to falling units and and weakening economics so so the last cycle if you think was China-driven, very much China industrial commodities-driven. I do think this is going to be a broad-based cycle, but how we're addressing the market right now is different in terms of you know heavy agriculture, heavy um, you know energy-based in terms, of, let's say, LNG, U.S. natural gas, uh, precious metals. Uh, we're not so heavy in the industrial metals for those reasons I outlined.
2: It, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I think the the, the China situation has gotten overlooked uh, because. You know, I do think you have. I, I'm going to make the analogy here that the China real estate bubble is sort of analogous to the Japanese real estate bubble of the late I agree, 80s, totally. um, which, by the way, did not end well either for the world or, or you know, yeah. for Japan. Um, and and yet, at the same time, I think China had been a A force for global deflation, uh, the the globalization aspect of it. So they, you know, they they had this bid. They had basically they were this bid for commodities and and, um, you know, just raw material out, you know, inputs that they needed, which which will probably slow somewhat if they're not building houses all the time and have to work through this backlog. Um, Yet at the same time, um, you've got. I'm going to say, d- diminishing returns from globalization. I think COVID is making businesses rethink um, their supply chains and issues of that nature. Um, do you feel that this could meaningfully impact inflationary trends just at the time where we're, where we're really starting to see them stick their heads up? We we won't get that benefit from, from reduced labor costs in other countries.
0: Well, you know, that's... It's a really it's a really good question. I mean, it's it's one of the things that we do wrestle, you know, wrestle with, because, again, I do firmly believe that without gold, you can't have a an honest to God, multi-year bull market in in commodities. But, um, you know, when we when we when we look at that, um, I'd say a couple of things. First, first of all, it's very easy now for people to look back in retrospect and, you know, look at China driving a global commodity bull market. But, Remember when I was in that seat as an analyst at, at T Rowe in '02 and '03, and we were accumulating, you know, a multi-billion-dollar position in the commodity complex, commodity companies. You know, there had never been a China-driven <laughs> commodity cycle, right? True. I mean, everybody thought of the '70s because that was that was the last analog. So just because the last one was, in fact, China-driven, doesn't mean the next one has to be China-driven. We had a we had a a, a gold-driven commodity bull market in the '70s where there was, in fact. No, China. Uh, And so um, I definitely think that, you know, these things may may rhyme, but they they don't repeat. They are they are different. Every bull market uh, is kind of different in its in its own way. But we definitely have one eye on China. And I can tell you my concerns about that go back a long time, Um, even back in 2012. Uh, I went over to China for a whole week in April of 2012 and we spent a week uh, going all over the country kind of working on one issue and one issue only, which was the China, China shadow banking system oh. because I had a deep concern that it looked very much like the U.S. shadow banking system that was the credit accelerator for the U.S. housing bubble, which we were able to kind of identify and navigate. Um, you know, and, and when I went over there 10 years ago, all the pieces were in place and uh, and then ten years went by, <laughs> you well, know, and the problems got bigger.
2: I think central banks have a have a way of, of being able to wallpaper over the problems, but eventually, uh-huh. eventually they do reveal themselves, and, and that is my um, sort of existential fear that that is what you know what's going on in China now is is the result of that, and uh, what we may be looking ahead to some of the volatility that we're reckoning with here in the US, which which predates the Russia-Ukraine cycle, I I, I want to add. I, no, I, I, do that of, I do think that's some I do think that's some of it is is, you know, the Fed having uh papered over a lot of the a lot of the issues uh to
0: keep the economy on a solid track
2: after COVID.
0: You know, if there's one point I would I would interject, I guess, is um, you know, in in inflation's very is very powerful and very insidious and I guess the good news about inflation is that in 15 minutes of looking at the situation, you can understand why there is inflation. I can tell you that um, one of the things that was very helpful for me for me in the navigating the financial crisis was an understanding that credit is different from uh, inflation. And the credit is debt that somebody believes they're going to get paid back. It's a it's a serious obligation. And when you have a boom in obligations—that's really kind of robbing from the future. Um, and uh, and and if you take a look, to kind of to your point, I mean there are many sins I think our central bankers have um, have committed, and you know printing of printing of money and so forth un, unquestionably have been bad. I I would argue, frankly, the most pernicious that people do not yet understand is the scope of our future that we've mortgaged to uh, debt obligations um, based on today's favorable view on asset prices that was exactly what happened to Japan yeah and
2: that, that's that is a that is a huge problem especially when you consider that one man's one man's liability is another is another's exactly. asset and if exactly. that asset becomes impaired that is deflation and um, you're we're walking a, a big tightrope you know do you, do you do we keep a system where we pay back the debts with with you know with inflated currency or you know de- devalued currency or do we or do we let the or do we let the debts resolve themselves, which is deflationary in and of itself? So it, it, it's not a, it's not a, a scintillating prospect either way if you're a central banker.
0: Yeah, you know, I, it's definitely. I mean, we, we think a lot about these these issues as a as a research team, and uh, you know, behind closed doors we re- agitate or uh, wave our arms and, and uh, debate it but I you know I, I can tell you that I guess if I my framework on this we'll see if it ends up being the right one is that in an over indebted world it's very difficult for the central banks to kind of raise uh, sustainably the, the real cost of money because that's an enormous tax and I think that that one of the things that that may end up driving gold if this framework is correct is is um, taking away this kind of um, false belief that, that that the Fed can go out and raise rates, but that any of these central bankers can. Because in my view, they're not in charge anymore. Because frankly, when they created this enormous pile of debt over the last five decades, the pile of debt is in charge. I mean, not, not them.
2: There, well, there's, there's the old saying, if, if I owe a million dollars to the bank and I can't pay it back, I'm ruined. If I owe a billion dollars to the bank and I can't pay it back, the bank is ruined. And, that's correct you know and best. that's that's really what you're you're talking about writ large which which you know brings us back into because we've alluded to some of the historical precedents and you know you, you mentioned getting started just as the just as the tech bubble was was deflating um, you know and having weathered the global financial crisis of, of the 2008 era mortgage crisis um, you know t- let's let's dig a little deeper into into some of the parallels and I, I appreciate a with with great appreciation to your recognition that history doesn't always repeat, but it certainly rhymes. Um, what are some of the thing? What are some of the parallels that that we that you see being relevant um, in the current climate? And what, what else do you think is you know not something we should be as
0: concerned with now as we were then? Hmm. Now you know that that's a, that's a great question. I mean, um, so let me think where to start. So I suppose it, it is kind of we started this conversation, Steve. Everything is cyclical, even the things that people don't yet understand are cyclical <laughs> that they're going to find out are cyclical. And so that's the the framework that I've kind of grown up with. And I'm, I'm too old of a dog to change that view. But, uh, but so one thing that rhymes um one of the major cycles that we've, we've studied, it's called the kind of Kuznets infrastructure cycle it's named for Simon Kuznets, it's every 16 to 20 years, he won a Nobel Prize for his insights back in the 30s studying the cycles. And um, that's essentially a real estate or infrastructure cycle. Uh, and so if you look back at some of the major financial catastrophes that have shaken the world or shaped the world, so let's start with say 87 to 89 in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was arguably one of the biggest, you know, uh, real estate bubbles in, in history. So you add 16 or 20 years to that and you get 2005, 2006 it's in yep. the U.S. Uh, OK. And so that was the housing bubble. That was a defining moment for many people. So you had, 50, you know, 15 to 20 years for that. And you go to China and look at that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes. 15 to 20 years. And now it's in China, you know, because. Uh, you know so these that's the periodicities and frankly if you went back and you studied that uh, you you would see that one of those cycles has taken place um, with pretty reliable periodicity all the way back to you know 1907 but um, so so that's kind of one of the things that informs our framework is is what are the you know, in Don Rumsfeld's you know wonderful framework of like the the known unknowns. And I one use of this the all known, the
2: time. The un, you yeah. known unknowns versus the unknown unknowns.
0: Oh yeah, the unknown unknowns are, are the ones that th- those do. are
2: the truly exogenous. The roadways. Yeah, waves, and frankly,
0: yeah, and we should we should talk about that in a minute. But but I think one of the the, the known unknowns is that you ha- you have these uh, real estate cycles. They take place every every other business cycle, and they sneak up on people because for many. People maybe 15 years as their career in the business, which is one of the reasons that I love to study history because it kind of gives you an edge, in my opinion, about studying, you know, past times. And so, so that's why I was kind of focused on the issue in, in China even in 2000, um, you know, in 12. And and so now, writ large, um, you know, frankly, I think it's it's a pretty it, it's a real challenge that they're going to have to to deal with. And that informs how we how we think about, you know, investing. So so I I do think that there is a a real risk of a highly overvalued real estate, frankly, bubble that's breaking in in China. You know, we don't really have any participation in that sector. We're watching with some concern. Uh, So so to me, that's a little and that, of course, is what drove the the financial crisis, because it was the fact that highly levered financial companies had mortgages as collateral. And to your point, um, you know, the homeowner's liability was the bank's asset. And when those got compromised, it compromised the health of the financial system, which is what led to the the financial crisis. So we'll see how dark things get for the Chinese authorities. I think they're gonna be wrestling those alligators for a while. Um, And then if you step back and you think, More broadly, you know, I do look at this market and it it does feel a little bit like the run up into the the tech cycle, Um, you know, new and interesting technologies um, that, you know, captivate particularly young investors who, um, you know, don't have the arrows sticking out of them you know, that I have after, you know, doing this for a while and very easy to be enthusiastic.
2: I I, I think a lot of it is youthful enthusiasm, to be fair. I mean, that's who drove the internet. You know, they were the early adopters of the internet and they saw it. Um, And I think younger people, because they don't have the arrows in them, are a bit more um, willing to take the risk. Um, And I think many of them see the same future in blockchain that I, I will admit I don't, I know is out there. I know has a, a, a multitude of uses, um, but we can argue whether or not um, you know a lot of the a lot of the new technologies that are that are cropping up, the crypt, you know crypto being one just one use of of um, of blockchain, and along with NFTs, um, are they really are they really going to be the uses that we look back mm-hmm. in twenty years and say, oh yeah, that that's the you know those are the killer apps for those technologies.
0: Well no that's true you know and of course everybody um, I think with correctly so points back to let's say you know Amazon and of course um, I had the great fortune to meet Jeff Bezos you know in uh, February of 2000 I think it was he oh, came wow. to Wharton and he spoke and um, and what you know of course he's an immensely talented entrepreneur and everything that he's he's accomplished but but Amazon did fall in 92% during that um, decline, and of course, it was amazing technology, and it did go on to conquer the world. But there was that little intervening 92% decline along the way, and you know, That's... you do have to manage through. You know, you know, I I keep telling our analytical team, you know, don't go to the end of the movie. Like you've got to <laughs> live each scene. You can't just go to the end. I love that. You know what? I, I I'm noticing here. We've
2: we you know we try to keep these to about a half an hour. You and I have been going for. At least a half an hour, and we could probably go another half an hour. But I, I and I want to I want to sort of guide us toward a conclusion. But you and I have gotten a bit gloomy at times in
0: here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no. Well, yeah. Let me. Yeah. So no, that's great. Well, want to end on take, a
2: happy note?
0: Yeah. Uh, no. Well, look. Let me take a step back. Well, I mean, I can tell you that. I mean, I couldn't be more excited about about the markets <laughs> for me, for me personally. Because um, remember, I mean, I cut my teeth in this business. You know. <sighs> going to Brazil in 2002 and touring iron ore mines or going to China in February of 2003. I mean, I was a strange dude going strange places and it was fun, you know, but because, because what I really like, Steve, is I like change and the world is demonstrably changing right now. (laughs) And that doesn't that, you know, and so that may be a challenging time for the markets, but I think if you've got um, a team that that is thoughtfully doing honest to God real real research and is not afraid to um, uh, you know kind of put their money where the mouth is, and and to look different from the market and of course message that, then then change is great. You know, I mean, there's a wonderful quote from um, from Napoleon. You know, who said that um, you know uh, revolution is a is a great time for soldiers of merit and courage, and uh, right because he he. Yeah went to be a corporal to, uh, the emperor and he could not have made that happen if there weren't, you know, bombs, you know, going off and, and strange times. And so, um, so, you know, we frankly, you know, welcome a, a very different world than what we've, what we've been in. We think that's, um, you know, what we try to offer for clients in terms of our research. So, so it may be a, a different world, but I think, um, you know, I'm I'm really excited about, you know, getting to work and, and I think, you know, there's always a bull market somewhere if there's if there's only one thing I've learned in this business. <laughs> that's you that's know, very but, true. No, but you know, look, but that's the thing. It might be ten thousand miles away, other side of the world, and it always starts very small. I mean, remember Apple before it became Apple was flat for 20 years. Apple had no forward progress from 1983 until 2003. And so if you would have told people in 2003 that Apple was going to be the size, people would have laughed at you. So it started small and it became real. The next cycle, I think, will be just like that. And one thing that gets us out of bed and into work in the the morning every day is is to find that next big thing because it's out there
2: that is a th- wow I couldn't have written a better coda to the to this discussion Lewis this this was a true pleasure um, for, you know for those of you who, who've been listening all along I, I I hope you learned as much as I did um, through my conversation today with Lewis Johnson um, of capital wealth advisors again you're listening to interactive brokers traders insight radio uh, we appreciate your listening uh, we'll have this podcast uh, as, along with many others available on our site and on major platforms And once again, many thanks to our guests. I I truly enjoyed your perspective and your ability to balance risk and reward and to be continually looking forward. And um, I only wish you the best for you and your customers.
0: No, thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us.
2: My pleasure. Talk to everybody soon. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at IBKR.com. Interactive Brokers is not affiliated with and does not endorse or recommend any third-party investment information, advice, services, or products discussed in this episode. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBQR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.